Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Agricultural 250. Revolution. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Mike Osborne. It is February 19th, 2021. I'm outside my house in central Austin. I wonder if you can hear the snow melting in the background. That's snow in Austin. That does not happen. I mean, it happens, but it's so rare that it happens. Uh, it's actually really beautiful. All the trees have ice in them, and they're kind of glistening. You know, it's a winter wonderland, and that's not something we usually see in Austin. For the last five days, we've had an ice storm across Texas. It's been in the news. Uh, it knocked power out for millions of people. Right now, our house is without water. Uh, I've got a little kiddie pool and some buckets trying to collect some of this water so that we'll be able to flush toilets. Whenever something like this happens, whenever you get this sort of extreme weather event, you can't help but ask yourself, is this related to climate change? Is this a global warming you know, kind of event? You ask that question to scientists and you're gonna get a frustrating answer, right? There's some evidence that suggests that in a warmer world, the polar jet will weaken and these kinds of storms may become more likely. That's not really a satisfactory answer, and maybe it's not even an interesting question. Still, it does have you thinking, you know, maybe, maybe this is the kind of wake-up call. Maybe this is the sort of storm, extreme weather event, whatever you want to call it, that gets people thinking, hey, maybe we need to take climate change seriously. Maybe this will be that, you know, catalytic moment. Climate change, even if the absolute worst predictions come true, is never going to be happening so fast and so severely that it makes an impression on the human brain over the course of a lifetime. It's just the, the time scales are mismatched. And that brings us to today's guest. My name is David Roberts, and I run and operate and write for an email newsletter 
called Volts, which is about clean energy and politics and kind of whatever else is on my mind at the moment. You're somebody who's been on my radar for a long time. And I know uh, I, I admire your your tweets. I think you're very good at tweeting, sir. Um, I never I can never I never know whether that's like subtly all also a dig or maybe that's just my head that does yeah. that. Yeah, it does sound like a backhanded compliment. No, I I genuinely like oh a David Roberts tweet. This is this will be dry and sarcastic. So no, I actually genuinely appreciate your tweeting. Uh, and I also I have a toxic relationship with Twitter. I try and stay away from it, but I can't. It's it's it's. Is, is there any other kind of relationship with Twitter? I probably not. Yeah, no, there's <laughs> that's true. I haven't met anybody who's like, I have a very healthy relationship with yeah. Twitter where I go there for psychological well being yeah. and Get wellness. Lots of great practice. feedback, feel yeah. better about myself. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, I haven't actually met that person. They're supposedly out there if you talk to Jack Dorsey. <laughs> Quick backstory on David Roberts. He used to write for the environmental news blog Grist. That's when he first popped out in my radar. He then left Grist and went to work at Vox for a number of years, and he's now got a newsletter called Volts. I reached out to him recently for a number of reasons. The first is that ever since the 2020 election and Biden took office, and he's obviously a lot more serious about climate change than Trump ever was, you know, and the Democrats won the Senate, it seems like maybe there's a possibility that there's going to be some meaningful action on global warming, you know, on trying to bend the CO2 curve. David Roberts is a pretty pessimistic guy overall, so I wanted to see, you know, where his thinking is at these days. And I should say before going on that, in this conversation, he and I cursed a lot. There's a lot of F-bombs. So if you're listening to this with children, you might think about turning it off. Now, the other reason I really wanted to talk to David Roberts is last year, he wrote an article for Vox that was all about this idea of shifting baselines. You've probably heard that term before. I know I had, but I'd never really like sat with it. I'd never really thought about what does this mean. And I thought his article was excellent. And so I began the conversation with David by asking him, where does this term shifting baselines come from and why is it important? It's a term that originated in biology, it started in the kind of fisheries area and the and the idea was that over time a fish population in a given area can be overfished to the point of extinction and so you sort of have to ask why if this fish population is heading to extinction which is going to be to the great disadvantage of the fisher communities that rely on it does nobody get alarmed and freaked out and raise warnings why does it just happen in the the basic idea is for a given generation of fishers and their baseline, their mental and psychological and economic baseline is however big the population is at the moment they start fishing it. So they don't experience it as diminished. They just set their baseline wherever they come in. And so from the time they start to the time they're done, there's a sort of mild <laughs> decrease in the fish population, but never a jump, never any kind of breach, never any kind of mark you cross. And then the next generation comes in and their new baseline is that diminished level of fish, but they don't, again, don't experience it as diminished. So basically the fish population diminishes to nothing, but no individual generation of human beings experiences that loss. And so I think once people sort of hear the notion 
immediately your mind goes to all the other places <laughs> it applies. And this is true for pollution or dirty air or water. It's true for good things too. Like, you know, when we read the news, we don't experience the level of people in the world who are receiving adequate daily nutrition, right? That number has been rising and rising and rising and rising for decades, yeah. which is really, if you look at the whole thing, remarkably positive news, but no individual generation experiences a large chunk of that difference. And so we don't experience it as something worth celebrating. And similarly, as things decline, it just happens too slowly. And the main thing that comes out of the research is it just happens incredibly quickly. That's the sort of striking thing about it is it takes almost no time for us to reset our baselines. That's a real Anthropocene kind of theme for me, oh, yeah. the the discordant experience of a thing. So there's a number of different themes I want to get into in terms of my reaction. But before I do that, this is usually a question I reserve for people who write a book, but I'm going to ask it here. Why did you want to write this article? Well, the motivation came actually from the pandemic, from COVID-19, and it came from me reflecting on the fact that Back then, I think it, we were, I don't know, at a thousand deaths a day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I forget what the exact benchmark was. Of course, we're way up since then. But I was just thinking, if you had jumped from a year ago to today, if the same number have, of people had died suddenly, society would be convulsing <laughs> to, to respond to this thing. It would be, you know, like it, it, you think about 9-11, that was 2,000 people. And you think about how much that changed the world, how deeply that was felt, how much it changed international relations, et cetera, et cetera, almost entirely because it was like all of a sudden, but we've had, a, we're having a 9-11 every day right now as we, as we speak. Yeah. And it's just not having that effect because it crept up on us. It just got a little worse and a little worse and a little worse. And our lives got a little bit more restricted and a little bit more restricted and a little bit more restricted. And so what I saw was we are treating now 2,000 people a day dying and us not being able to see one another and us having to wear masks everywhere. It's almost become normal for us. It's almost become unremarkable. If, if it can happen that fast in the face of something that horrific, mm -hmm. then what chance do we ever have of people waking up and getting alarmed about climate change, which of course is going to have even more devastating impacts, but even more slowly. And the, and the geographic realities, right? Climate change may be bad in any, and, and may even be acute and may even be visible or feel kind of visible anywhere on earth at any given time. There's way less ice here, or there's wildfires in, in Australia, or, you know, the American West is covered in smoke, or it's an awful hurricane season. But never will all of those things happen simultaneously all over earth at the same point. So it's like time and geographically. Just the scales, right? Yeah, the, the, yeah. The temporal and spatial scales are not well suited. And you could say this about a lot of different problems that face humanity. I mean, one of the sort of mythologies in climate discussion ever since I started was this sort of belief among climate advocates that the reason people don't believe in climate change is that it's not affecting them personally. And, and there's going to come some point 
like mm-hmm. some disaster, some storm that's so bad, some drought that's so bad it will wake people up. And basically with this piece, I was just kind of trying to put a definitive end to that kind of thinking. The scales, the temporal and spatial scales are never going to align such that this problem grabs us in the gut. We're going to have to solve it based on intellect and planning. (laughs) There's just no way around it. You're not going to get a populist revolt against climate change. It's just forlorn. So you just got to like take that on board, I think. Yeah, no, it's um, very well put. Very well put. And I mean, definitely left me thinking, fuck, okay. (laughs) (laughs) That seemed to be a common reaction to the piece. I mean, well, no, there are good themes to pull out of it too. So, you know, let's get back to that in a second. I I actually want to stick on the sort of motivation for one more time, because in addition to like, COVID, and if you had gone back to 2019 or 2018 and plucked us down here, you'd been like, oh my God, this many people are dying every day, and yet we've sort of found our way into this being a new kind of normal. I think this was actually a real theme, honestly, of the Trump presidency. Yeah. Oh, that also that's also what got me thinking about it, but I should have mentioned that, actually. I was like, look how much we've gotten used to of this dude, and how quickly. And in, in an experiential sense. I was going to say, if you look at this from kind of an evolutionary standpoint or or like a biological standpoint it's not really a flaw right like it's it really Mm -hmm. contributes to our enormous resilience as a species that we are capable of just adapting so quickly and so completely we're basically able to adapt to almost anything and get used to almost anything you know if we lose something we're not sad forever (laughs) you know we get used to it so it's it's a measure of our resilience within those temporal and spatial scales I'm talking about, right? Like if you're running around on the savanna and you're avoiding lions, in, in the circumstances in which we evolved, this was a very, I think, useful tendency. It's probably why it was selected for. Like you just, you have to be able to forget and adapt to stay sane. But now we're saying because of the scale of human civilization, we're just facing a number of problems now that don't operate in those scales. And so it's not just climate. It's, it's a kind of a bigger collective problem of humanity is how do we, in some sort of structured, sane way, tackle these problems that don't get us in the gut? How do we organize society to do these things that are never going to tap into the kind of strong feelings that generally push politics this way and that. That's the real meta problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and and back to the kind of motivation question, why'd you want to write the article? I guess what I'm hearing is part of it was to say, hey, guys, we need to take, and, and gals, hey, everybody, we need to take off the table this idea that there's going to be some wake-up call moment. If you're waiting yeah. around for that, that's dangerous, flawed thinking, and it's wrong. And that there's there's not going to be a catalytic instant in which we all say, Jesus, global warming really, really is bad, which is almost scarier, right? It almost would be more helpful to have that catalytic moment, even though you're praying for catastrophe. A Pearl Harbor moment, I think, is is the way the way to refer to it. That's what everybody envisions in their head, right? Is is Pearl Harbor shaking everyone awake? You know, the other piece I had, and maybe this is a little bit more personal, but the other reaction I had to it was very corny. I, I got kids now, and. I have this real sensitivity around nostalgia. 
and and, and the mm. sort of risks and and dangers of nostalgia. And one of the things I think about part of it, I think actually, is I grew up in Austin, Texas, and I sometimes make the joke: you only have to live in Austin for six months before you start bitching about how great it used to be, um, because <laughs> <laughs> like the whole culture of this city is kind of you know has this retro yes, like once, once upon a time. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you are. And there's a part of me that really rebels against that because we romanticize the past. And I also just don't like the message, hey, you know what? It used to be awesome. There was a great party <laughs> here and you missed it. Sorry. Everything you're experiencing now, the world as you've inherited it, is tainted and too bad for you. There's a truth to that, right? There is like we yeah, my kids are in a warmer world. But at the same time, I'm also like, I don't want to fucking tell them like it's all kind of fucked. So I guess I'm curious to hear your reaction to that, because the thing is, when, whenever your environmental ethics do come of age and whatever relationship you do have with planet Earth and you say this is when it was really good, you're now sort of anchoring values at some point in the past. And I feel like there's a real risk with that. Yeah, there's risks on all sides. I mean, people are not naturally aware of the diminished state of things that they're inheriting, right? I mean, that's the whole point of the kind of shifting baselines parable in the first place. But then I sort of imagine myself trying to convey it, trying to convince my kids, no, no, this really sucks. (laughs) Trust me, trust me, things used to be better. Demonstrably, numerically, things were better. And and furthermore, they're just going to get worse. And, and really, if we're being honest, the choices our children face are between diminished and super diminished and super, super diminished. Like those are those are the climate choices now. Like there's no there's no victory available to them. The best the very best they can do with heroic action is to limit some of the inevitable damage. There's already damage baked in. Things are already definitely going to get worse. Yeah. There's going to be more extinctions. There's going to be worse weather. Sea levels are going to rise. Even if we stopped emitting, you know, greenhouse gases tomorrow, like things are going to get notably worse. And that's best case scenario. I just picture myself trying to convince my kids of this. And I was like, God, if I'm successful, they're going to go jump off a bridge, you know, but, <laughs> but if they're not successful, then they don't, maybe won't be able to appreciate the urgency and scale of what's happening. And I don't know how to answer that dilemma. We created kind of a shitty situation for them and there's no pretty way to put it. Being ignorant of it is not going to help them. But on the other hand, really internalizing it can't be pleasant. So, and I don't really know what the third option is. I mean, I think in all these conversations, when I, you know, talk about the depressingness of it all, Mm -hmm. I think the very best thing we could do for them, not only in concrete terms, in terms of solving the problem and, and improving material circumstances, but psychologically is to build a structure through which they can fight back, build policies and agencies of government and it's and organizations and habits of behavior and just sort of you have to dig out these grooves in culture for people to to follow you and come into them so we need to dig out some grooves where there's righteous fighting to be had that can make a, a difference one of the, the most depressing aspects of the current situation in the US not only about covid not only about climate change is just the US structure of government is so fucked up that it's really difficult to tell young people that they will have a meaningful opportunity to change things because the whole system's built to resist 
change and reform. Like the whole system's built to overweight the interests of those who want to preserve the status quo. So you can't even tell them things are bad, but go do this and you will feel the sort of righteous sense of fighting on the right side and, you know, finding compatriots and finding purpose and like all that stuff is meaningful, but we can't even give them that because the government's fucked up too. So to me, that's the most urgent thing, almost more urgent than climate change itself is just is, is improving the operation of government, giving these kids the tools they need to fight back against these horrible things. Because if you tell them at the same time, things are getting really shitty inexorably and P.S., the system's broken and there's nothing you can do about it. That's a devastating one, too. Like, we've got to change one of those at least. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. I mean, I uh, the structural challenges of uh, democracy are not more important, but it's the step that's got to come before the... Yeah you deal with the climate crisis, right? And and that we have a minority rule baked into this system of government for the most powerful country and the biggest polluter in the world. So that we got to deal with that before we bend the CO2 curve. We got to solve this intractable problem before we solve the next intractable problem and then the next intractable problem. It's like- There's got to be an order of operations here. Yeah. It's like fractal, right? <laughs> fractal yeah. problems here yeah. all the yeah. way down. I think everybody, no matter what their bigger, longer term priorities are, everyone of goodwill ought to be gathering together right now and focusing on that first problem that must be solved before all the other ones are solved. Everybody should put aside their own shit for a while and unite behind democracy reform, making D.C. a state, Puerto Rico a state, restoring voting rights, changing gerrymandering. Ditch the Electoral College, make voting rights stronger in the states, all of it. Yeah, totally. But in my mind, you either get that done or nothing else gets done. Like no, going forward decades, there's every chance in my mind that our democracy is going to fall apart and move into crisis and become some kind of autocracy if we don't do that in the next two years. And that's got some urgency, right? There's no sort of, there's no shifting baselines there. <laughs> yeah. We're about to flip, yeah. <laughs> like a, a flip a state from democracy to not democracy. There's no... You know, people ought to be able to get worked up about that. I mean, this, this question of how do you sustain outrage, I think, is like the question of the day. What does healthy, sustained outrage even look like? You know? Yeah. Um, you're, and, and to return to our original subject here, this psychological feature of humans, what they call our psychological immune system, right? The minute you have that sort of anxiety about a new situation in your brain, you have psychological antibodies that go to work trying to get rid of it. So your brain and your psyche want you to put the outrage aside and just get used to it, right? Right. That's kind of the natural tendency. So in a sense, and we've seen this even during Trump, in a sense, you kind of have to fight yourself. You kind of have to be like, no, I cannot just treat this as a normal thing, (laughs) like another thing that happened. This is objectively bad. I have to retain my capacity to be outraged. But then you're fighting to preserve your ability to feel something that's unpleasant. So it's just like... Yeah, what a weird problem. Like a, a bad, it's like a layer cake of bad. Yeah, no, that... Um, you must have been a big hit with the Cub Scout leaders growing up. Um, <laughs> Kids, there's no hope. Yeah. Yeah, tell- let me show you how to do some rudimentary survival skills here. Yeah, all right. Well, actually, let me return to the kids thing one more time because another part of it for me, it's less about the utilitarian life support systems of the planet 
way of thinking. I mean, there is all that. We need a relatively stable climate to have a relatively stable food system so we can build a relatively stable civilization. And we are literally playing with fire with that right now. But the, the other piece of it for me is more on the, the tree hug and let's go out and have a transcendent experience in nature and make sure to sit next to a waterfall or climb a mountain or surf or whatever your thing is. And and I feel like that's where I, I kind of want to sequester my children from the tainted earth message because I want them to grow up to be tree-hugging hippies even in the Anthropocene, even in a man-made or human-altered global ecosystem. Yeah, I, I'll, I mean, I hear that and i hear that from lots of people and you know i think it's possible to fall in love even with a diminished earth i'll just say for my own idiosyncratic part i mm-hmm. did not come to environmentalism that way oh really i mean i, mean, I love cities i love yeah. culture i love uh my really? my Yes. I mean, and and please understand me. I'm saying absolutely nothing negative or derogatory about about loving nature or being a tree hugger. I respect it entirely. It's just not something that touches or moves me. So I've had to kind of approach it from a more intellectual place than a visceral place, really. And I think that's probably going to be true of my kids, too, since I'm also raising them as city kids and not doing nearly as much as I should to get them out. Weren't you in Montana? Uh, I was in Montana. I enjoyed snowboarding immensely. Make, make no mistake. And I and I did get you know because I was in that peer group. I did get dragged out on hikes and camping. Like I did a lot of that stuff. Yeah. It's just not. It's just it just never really grabbed me in that way. Which I think you know in some ways it was a, a problematic in that uh, you know I didn't have a kind of first person resonance with that kind of feeling, which is a very mm. important feeling and a big driver for a lot of what's happened historically. Yeah. But I also get, but I also think it, it, in the same way that I didn't come out of environmentalism, I didn't come out of the DC political reporter scene and I didn't come out of an Ivy league school or any sort of fancy education. So I sort of just like entered the entire field as a complete and utter outsider with to to politics to environmentalism to everything so i think that's been somewhat of an advantage for me in that i can kind of take a clinical view of the whole thing and how it fits together and i don't get kind of sucked into the to the sort of identity based disputes after a while which are rare, rarely fruitful so totally. you know it's been an advantage and a disadvantage no yeah that's interesting and and makes me realize i had a whole bunch of assumptions i guess it's the beard i guess i just saw the beard and like heard snowboarding and like well, you said long hair to you definitely would have mistaken me for a tree hugging yeah you'd totally seen me in montana. montana he's got to be all about ponderosas what, what part of montana were you in by the way I, I went to undergrad in missoula oh fun uh i did a couple of years in bozeman and then went to missoula and got my master's at the university of montana my master's in philosophy so I lived above the I lived above the old post. Yeah, I don't know if you remember the oh, old oh, post. Oh yeah, I mean I remember walking in. I I don't remember walking out most nights, but yeah. Yes, I would hear them throw their bottles out every evening at two a.m. That's that was my what that years was, my was college. this? Oh, late nineties. Dude, that's when I was there, man. I I, ah. I graduated uh, two thousand into two thousand one. I was there for for nine eleven, but I was doing an undergrad. Wow, that's wild. Yeah, what a, what a spot. Uh, and anyway, I'm impressed that you managed to 
snowboard your way through Bozeman and Missoula without hugging any trees along the way. And I actually am sort of impressed with, it's a really good answer, actually. That sort of outsider perspective of I'm not coming at this with a whole bunch of emotions is <laughs> necessarily is a kind of strength for finding an audience. Yeah, yeah. Not just the emotions, but also I feel like if you come up within kind of the tree-hugging hippie community, you also absorb a bunch of sort of background assumptions and sort of dispositions about not only about nature, but about, you know, nuclear power, for instance, or rivers, or you know what I mean? Like a policy preferences, cultural preferences, preferences in the way you like dress and and what music, just all all that stuff. I, I kind of avoided. And so I was able to sort of take what I wanted from it, you know, without feeling this sort of identity allegiance to it. Yeah, no, I relate to that because I do feel like a lot of the work in my adult life has been trying to shed myself of the biases that are kind of baked into the identity yeah. um, and I've... and recognizing how much privilege and, you know, whiteness yeah. and uh, and false framings and, you know, incorrect information, as well as, well, you identify this way, then obviously you're going to support these policies or, or that one. So in, in a way, you are right that you're lucky to have not been kind of- I mean, if there's way. one thing, I, I, I'm, I'm characterologically prone to uh, self-deprecation, but if there's one thing I feel that has made my journalism good, that has been an advantage for me in journalism, is that just both by sort of temperament and character and background, I'm just- kind of a non-joiner i'm an outsider i just yeah. don't i just don't feel the 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 pull or the appeal of status within a group or within a tribe like that and again i'm not saying anything derogatory about it it's perfectly human it's weird how i am is weird yeah but i do feel like it's given me an advantage journalistically in that i can you, you know assess things sort of on their merits without those identity ties pulling at me for all of your, I'm not going to, I don't know. I, I don't know if you would take issue with me saying uh, that you are cynical, um, but I think you wouldn't take issue with me saying you don't always have a happy message. I got to say, <laughs> I am feeling, and call it delusion, call it the hangover for four years of just what in the fuck is going on. I am feeling kind of kind of like there's like just, little ray of hope right now it's not big (laughs) right it's not really big and i get all the structural problems i get that you know even though the democrats have a majority in the sentiment they still got some weird personalities on their side of the team that they got to deal with but i don't know i guess relative to you relative to your this is the way to ask the question relative to your baseline david roberts are you feeling a little bit more optimistic uh in january of 2021 than you usually do um well, first, let me just back up and address the cynicism thing, because I feel like lots of people misunderstand what cynicism is. A genuinely cynical person doesn't care. And so they don't go around lamenting and gnashing and tearing their hair out about all the things that are wrong because they assume and accept that everything is going to be horrible. The people who get identified publicly as cynical because they're constantly sort of outcrying doom are people who care like that's why they're upset like that's why they're constantly upset is because they've gotten hurt (laughs) their feelings have gotten hurt over and over again throughout their lives every time they're like people will be decent this time and then they're not again and it hurts their feelings again and they get upset again so like lots of people who are you know sort of outwardly pessimistic 
and cynical like me. I just don't think, I mean, I don't know if it's a different word or whatever, but it's, but it's mainly because I, I, I give a shit and I think people ought to be good. And I like, I think people can be good and it just disappoints me and hurts my feelings when they're not. And, you know, you can only be disappointed and have your feelings hurt so many times before you eventually put up walls. That's what all the pessimism is. It's just a wall guarding yourself against more frustrated expectations and more sort of people disappointing you. So that's just a, like a, a general note. No, but you know, it's a really good point. It's a really good point. And, and I'm glad you pushed back on it. And, and I hear that. I mean, I don't mind people calling me cynical. I think, I think a lot of people kind of know what, what that means. And they know that I'm like, I'm not nihilistic. Like why else would I be banging on about this all day, every day? Well, it is. I, I think it is a question of how much hope you allow into your heart. And I guess that's what I'm really asking about. How much hope have you allowed into your heart in this moment? Or does it matter? This, this is like another area where I just feel like I'm built slightly differently than normal people. I remember this is a totally ridiculous tangent, but I'll I'll keep it brief. I remember when I was like 18 or 19, really like formative years, when I first found and took the Myers-Briggs personality test. Are you familiar with with this one? It's, It's viewed unfavorably these days by the smart set, like, because I think it's not predictive or I, it's I don't more know of an the, American thing too. I think they go with the big five, but whatever. Yeah. There's it's a big five yeah. by all accounts is much more scientifically solid. But, um, but the point for me was just, I took the test. It identified me as an INTP and it, and, and first of all, the long description of INTPs that I read, I was just like, Holy shit. That is so me. And so it was good for me, though. Like, this is why I get irritated with people who just sort of dismiss the thing because it doesn't, I don't know, predict who, like, you'll get along with if you marry them or whatever. But, like, for me, the function of the thing was just to say, yes, you are a kind of person. (laughs) You're not a freak alien. There There is a type of person like you. And, yes, you're not wrong that it's a rare type of person and it's an unusual type of person. So the fact that, like, your temperamental responses and your sort of emotional responses are somewhat different than other people's about things is not normal, but like, it's a thing. (laughs) There is, there are, it's a thing like you, you are a type of thing, like you're not crazy. So just, which is just a long-winded way of saying, there's been these discussions of hope and how much hope to have and whether to have hope and how much hope to express, just this endless kind of hope policing of one another almost <laughs> that goes on in the climate community that's gone on my whole career and just like all of it people keep asking me about hope intellectually if you're just asking me for like a like a pure predictive <laughs> intellectual take on it i'm not very optimistic no i think i think like u.s democracy is in it is is like the default direction right now is u.s democracy falling apart i literally think democrats have these two years to do something dramatic to slow the slide or the slide will probably continue. All of which is just to say, like, I'm not particularly hopeful on an intellectual scale, but like, that doesn't mean I'm going to fuck off to, you know, the Bahamas or whatever. Right, right. Well, well, God damn it. That wasn't exactly the fucking question though. Hang on. I'm so glad I asked Sorry. about this. It's, no, no, no. It's perfect. It's exactly like I, 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 <laughs> I needed, I needed to be like, why are you asking me about hope? I'm, I'm only asking about your baseline, David. <laughs> asking, right. Has your, has your hope baseline shifted at all? Because there's a, a, a maybe a narrow window of opportunity. And I, and I know you're down in the weeds with where those opportunities lie and how big they can be, mm-hmm. but 
I don't know, man. Like, I just feel like, fuck, this last four years, the principal problem with the world right now is that American democracy is not functioning, that we do have minority rule, that the that there's all these structural issues that we have to deal with, uh, with how people get representation and how we arrive at compromise and how we understand truth and do we even value objectivity more and all that, all that stuff I kind of care more about and I want to deal with that before we figured out how to bend the carbon curve. And I do feel like that is the, the order of operations. That said, there's a part of me that is personally allowing more, not hope exactly, it's more like I am, I'm allowing myself to fantasize about a more desirable future again in a way that I don't think I've allowed myself to do in a long time. And I'm wondering if you relate to That's that. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. I mean, I would have said toward the end of the Trump presidency, I would have said my expectation is that he'll cheat enough to make it close enough that they'll steal it. And then I have zero hope. Then we're doomed. Like America's doomed. If Trump wins the second term, and I really cannot emphasize enough, I mean, maybe everybody listening to this is already pre-convinced, but it's really not hyperbole. I really don't think that American democracy as such would have survived another Trump term. We would have ended up with something banana republic. Like we would have ended up with something like Turkey. And I really think still that that's on a pure odds basis, the most likely outcome. Like, but so I will say that Democrats pulling together and winning the election, even though by a much smaller margin than one might have liked, and then even more so Dems pulling together and winning Georgia. Yes, it produces a situation that is infinitely better and more hopeful than the alternative. <laughs> well, and on top right. of that, I think the way that climate has been elevated as an issue has to be thrown into the mix as well, that we are hearing about substantive promises in, in a way that I don't know was possible or was certainly going to happen in 2016 if Hillary had won. I, I do feel like this has moved up the agenda list in a meaningful way. And maybe that's where I'm I'm getting a little too Pollyannish about you know where where things are and where things well, are going. Moving but... up our list, right? It's moving up our sides list, but everything is sides now. Like everything is partisan. If you if you really dig into the polls that allegedly show change along these lines, what you'll find is the alleged increase increased acceptance of climate change and increased salience of climate change is almost entirely a phenomenon of the left. Like it is it is rising among Democrats on their priority list and on their policy list and on their and on the politicians list of what they think matters and activist lists of, you know, like on the left, it's absolutely happening like you would want it to happen. And it's and that's in and of itself amazing in and of itself is a testament to the Sunrise Movement and all these other, you know, young activists who have just plugged away at this for so long. It's a real thing, but it's not particularly moving on the right like every time and this is another thing i've seen throughout my career like every time there's a wiggle in the polling on the right there's this flood of articles like oh acceptance of climate change is ticking up on the right things are changing the right's going to come around and it's just like no it, they're not they're not doing that they're not gonna do that it's not happening continues not happening so yeah. the situation in the world here is this is how i try to describe it is in the u.s and i feel like this is true in a lot of other developed countries as well we have on the one hand a normal political system with normal political disagreements and a normal range of ideological commitments happening inside one of the parties <laughs> like that's the democrats are a normal modern political system 
in miniature, in and of themselves. Like there's a range of ideological disagreements and policy disagreements. And, you know, like you can have good arguments, but they share the sort of basic precepts of, yes, we actually want a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, like multicultural democracy where everyone is treated equally, like it says in the Declaration of Independence. We really do want that. We don't want a, a, a white Christian patriarchal monoculture, which is what the other side now wants. So we've got on the one hand, a normal country with normal political evolutions. And then on the other hand, this sort of like revanchist, anti-intellectual, tribalist, ugly, violent backlash. And the really most disappointing part of the Trump years to everyone on our side is that it turns out those two things are roughly the same size or no that's not true the backlash is smaller you know and they have all these they have all these ways of ruling despite their smaller size but not nearly as much smaller as i think a lot of people assumed and hoped it's real and substantial that's 74 million people that's just a lot of people and i think the reason i feel so little hope on the kind of longer scale is just even if by hook or crook, by some miracle, like Democrats manage to hold on to power through these tumultuous next few years to solve the kind of problem that climate is, absolutely the number one requirement, the necessary uh, a precursor to all else is social solidarity. We have to be able to, as a society, as a collective, make some long-term decisions and stick to some long-term plans, some of which will involve some short-term sacrifice for some people for larger social benefits in the long-term, and those people will need to be compensated, et cetera, et cetera. All these kind of things that you need to do, you need some baseline of social solidarity to be able to do it. And it's just really difficult to see how you're ever going to do that with 40%, say, of your country just in like this pre-modern fury. So I, I just don't, that's the big problem to me. Like I see lots of opportunities now in our current situation for sort of narrow victories and, you know, like some stuff squeaking through and maybe you can get this and maybe you can get that. But on the bigger picture, how do you drag 40% of your country along into a future that they don't want, that they explicitly reject? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh I, I You're should... going to leave this as depressed as me, by the way. This is my this is my superpower. No, 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 no. I, I, I'm going to, I hope, argue with you in my head as I go to bed and be like, you know what I should have said? And here's here's where the hope is that David Roberts isn't seeing right now. No, you know what? You're 100% right, man. And I don't, I don't know how to get there either. I know I care about it. Yeah, I don't want to talk to anybody. Just to clarify, I don't want to talk anybody out of feeling hope. I well, hope no, people feel no, hope, no, no, and I no. hope people fight. Like, your, go your, for it. Your point of social solidarity, though, I mean, it, it, I, I, what's what's broken down before all these other institutions of like sort of I don't know structural democracy to me is is shared destiny, right? And and ability to look at somebody who you disagree with and and not put them in their in another category of human uh, mm-hmm. or see so different. Like, it, 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 I, I really do yearn for a world in which we are looking for similarities in one another and, and not the differences which you can expand upon and drive bigger and bigger wedges and, and, the, and thus render yourself as a population and as a tribe vulnerable to manipulation. Let me, and I don't know what to do there because I don't see the goodwill on the other side. And I don't even, yeah. and it feels like a fool's errand to even go out hunting for it. At the same time, I'm not, you know, I'm also not a cynic. I'm also not a throw my hands up in the air kind of guy. Yeah, it's a... Uh... 
just to add one more note to this is is I've been doing some reading in social social sciences about this, and and, and you know political scientists I think have been coming around <laughs> recently to this idea that what they call it social trust. I think it's just sort of their term for what we would call solidarity. And it's just basically like, if you run into a stranger on the street, do you trust them? Because they're part of some meaningful, larger identity of which you're also a part. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, is there that sort of baseline trust? That's what they call social trust. And and political science, to the extent I've dug into it, and of course, I'm not a political scientist, but like to the extent I've dug into it and talked to these people, there's sort of two things they've discovered. One is social trust is necessary for anything else. There's no legal reform you know what I mean? Yeah. Or policy reform. There's no reform on the surface that can take hold and work unless you have that beneath it. Nothing works without that. It is the special sauce that makes societies work at all. And number two, they don't have any fucking idea how it works or how to make more of it or how it's made. <laughs> She is. It's like it's like this magic sauce yeah. that is necessary for anything else to work, and it's utterly mysterious yeah. to us. I was like, "Well, that's not comforting, guys." <laughs> Political scientists have been hard at work, and their answer is, "Fuck if we yeah, know." We don't even understand it. Yeah, I had no idea. Actually, I think that's a fucking. I think that's a really great note to end on. So, actually, before we wrap up, Volts, how do people find it? You know, and uh, what people can expect from it. Yeah, sure. It's it's at volts.wtf, which I hope people can remember. I just, I just recently discovered that's an actual internet domain, and so of course I couldn't pass it up. Wait, volts.wtf? So what to... the fuck? Really? WTF? Really? Yes, <laughs> volts.wtf. Wow. And, uh, and that will take you to the... To the sign-up page, and uh, you know it's going to be fun because it's going to be a it's going to be a community. It's not just going to be me talking to people. It's, it's a community. It's already a community. People are talking to one another. There's great discussions happening already. Like already, I've got this sort of like audience of really smart energy people, and they're just having like super fascinating discussions in the comments. And I'm, you know, and I'm taking their feedback about what they want to hear. So there's it's like an ongoing party with smart energy people is how I would view it. And you can like come join the party. I've been reading it myself and uh, I love it. I love your writing. I find it uh, a kick to read. And I learned, I, I've been nerding out on shit that I don't usually nerd out on. Energy <laughs> is not usually exciting to me and, and it's off to a really great start. So. Well, that's high praise. This was a lot of fun, man. Thanks for taking the time. Congratulations on Volts. And even if it's not, here's the hope. Here's the social trust. How about that? Here's the social trust. <laughs> yes. Here's the solidarity. <laughs> solidarity now. <laughs> All right. Um, David, thanks, man. I had a blast doing this. I'm cool. glad we got to connect. Yeah, thanks, Mike. It's fun. Thank you again to David Roberts for that conversation. You can follow David on Twitter at DRVolts. I recommend it.